I'm Robert Arari. I'm Salvatesh. It's Monday, February 3rd, 2020. And welcome to the very first episode of Casual Pour. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Smash the glass. All right, welcome to Casual Pour. We are your hosts. I'm Robert Arari. I'm Salpatesh. This is our first episode. So quickly, here's how we run things on this show. Every single week, Sal and I are gonna get together for a drink and we're gonna talk about a headline in business, media, and tech. And then we're gonna have another drink with someone incredibly impactful in the industry. Then after that drink, we're gonna have another drink. We're gonna have another drink, our third drink. A lot of drinks. A lot of drinks. A lot, lot of drinks. Um, <laughs> and we're going to talk about another headline together. This week, we're going to be sitting down with Greg Smith. Greg is the founder and CEO of Evolution VC Partners. He's an early investor in over 100 different tech startups. Including Sweet Green, Beyond Meat. Jewel, Via, Airtable, Intercom, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. He's probably one of the smartest investors I've ever met, if not the smartest investor I've ever met. And we're going to talk about the companies that are going to define the decade. Those are the companies that we believe we're going to interact with every single day over the course of the next 10 years. Uh, But before our drink with Greg, we're going to talk about TikTok's explosive 2019. Huge. Huge, 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 huge 2019. And then after our interview with Greg, we're going to talk and catch up on Peacock, which is NBC's newest streaming service and what that means for the rest of the streaming service. All the other 500 million streaming streaming services in the world. Uh, But first, let's talk about TikTok. TikTok is the social media app that you know and love, and they have had a year that shows it. This year, they brought in about $176.9 million in revenue. 738 million installs this year alone. Puts them over 1.65 billion users or four, one out of every 4.5 people in the entire world. All right, we're done with the, uh, with the, with the numbers. Those are the numbers. With the number Those are the numbers. Yeah. Now let's talk about why that's happening. First of all, first of all, it took Facebook a decade to get to hit those numbers. And TikTok did it in a year. Less. Yeah. Maybe even less. It's wild. I remember when Facebook hit that like 1 billion user mark and it was the biggest deal in the world. One out of every seven people in the world is on Facebook. And that was like only 10, five years ago. And it's it's so interesting. It just goes to show how much quicker people are latching onto these social networks. Oh, yeah. On another level. But I think for TikTok, I mean, obviously, two of the big reasons I think that they were able to to grow this quickly mm-hmm. is one. All right. Th- so three reasons. The first one is you have a lot more people using smartphones than a- any other time in history. So adoption's easier. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know how many people have a smartphone, but I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's a lot more than when Instagram launched or even when Snapchat launched. So that's the first reason. Second reason is it's literally designed to go viral. Isn't there something in, in there on their app store page that says literally yeah, like, yeah, go if you go viral. to their the, uh, t- one, their marketing is marketed around going viral yes. to their app. Every single thing. And we could go into that. Yeah. Every single thing built into that app is built around making sure that your videos go viral and that you can meet other people and other people can meet you. Yes. So it's literally designed. I keep saying literally it's designed to go viral. And the way the app was li- th- that literally. The way the app was designed, <laughs> one video will go to the first batch of people, which is a thousand people. Mm-hmm. If it passes some type of algorithm after the first thousand, it'll go to ten thousand, 
and then on and on and on and on. Interesting. So it kind of goes on in like pools of users to assess like, hey, is this something that could go viral? Yes. And then, huh. yes. So I, we know people that went viral on TikTok, which is crazy. Like regular people we yeah, know. Everyone went I mean, viral. Because anyone can. That's the crazy part. And then the second part is this type of community feeling. Not private like Snapchat. It's not um, Instagram where you're kind of trying to show off the quote-unquote best parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a place where everyone just gets to have fun. And I think that's a really, really important part of why TikTok's doing so well. By the way, what are you drinking? Oh, yeah, we should probably start We should probably talk about that. We really, at some point, we should figure out where we're going to put that in the show. I'm drinking sake today. Really? I am drinking sake today. Way to start out uh, the show on a cultural level. (laughs) Thank you. I'm drinking. I'm drinking. What are you drinking? Doing a doing. Hold. Let me get the bottle. It's a it's a Glen Morangi, the original. Nice, nice, nice. I can't do scotch this early in the day. That's only when I do scotch, I guess. But um, all right. Your thoughts on the TikTok, on the TikTok rise? Why do you think TikTok's flying? So I've been spending a lot of time looking at social media sites in general, social media platforms in general, and how they've gone viral. Um, you know, you and I have geeked out about this a a thousand times over, but basically there's two types of social media sites, right? You have your vertical social media sites and you have your horizontal social media sites. Vertical social media sites are social media sites that are very much centered around one very specific topic. So you could have a social network for your finances, or you can have a membership community where everybody's talking about their dogs and only about their dogs. They're vertical. And the community is built around those topics. Horizontal social media sites, those are sites we all use every day. That's Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok the included. Fun the f- sure, the fun ones. Those are all built around behaviors. Mm-hmm. So they all created these viral behaviors. So for example, Twitter introduced the tweet. That was the viral behavior. Snapchat introduced the ephemeral image, right? The image that goes away after a certain amount of time. Yeah. That was their big behavior. Yep. And people use those things in different ways. And that's what allowed, you could use a tweet to talk about AI and whatever you want to talk about there, or you could use it to talk about politics, or you could talk about what you fucking ate for lunch today, right? Nice. TikTok did the same thing. TikTok's big behavior and TikTok's big viral behavior was the entire video studio in your back pocket. They have a full suite video studio. So what does so that when mean? you go on the app, they're giving you the best editing tools. The best editing tools out there. Any other social media site. Like for example, something as simple as like, I could start recording and then pause recording and then restart recording, right? That lets me change costumes in the middle or do whatever I want, add a filter to my face in the middle, which on top of that, they have filters. They have the ability to add people's audio in, add songs So to that's it. like comparing it to Instagram. When Instagram launched, they had the filters, which right. now today is normal, but back in the day was wild. Right, exactly. That you can edit a picture that way. Yeah. So TikTok is doing that. What Instagram did back then, they're doing that now. They're exactly, and they're taking it to video. Um, and that's kind of step one. The second thing, so that's, that's the behavior that they did to make this go viral. But then on top of that, the app itself, in a way that other apps aren't, like we were just talking about, was designed to go viral. A lot of those video studio features we talked about. So for example, I could pull someone else's audio and put it into my TikTok. What does that mean? I could create these viral video formats. So the best example that everyone knows about is Old Town Road, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You look at Lil Nas X. He posted Old Town Road on Twitter and he got the party started by uh, posting some memes about it. But then at Nice Michael, who was a TikTok influencer, TikTok dancer, had about 100,000 followers at the time. 
messaged uh, Lil Nas X on Twitter and he said, hey, love this song. I was wondering if I could make a video about it. And he's like, sure. Uh, makes a video of him dancing. He starts off in like regular street clothes. And then all of a sudden, as the beat drops and does like the, I got the horses in the back thing, all of a sudden. That was from, good. Thank you. That was well done. Thank you. Um, all of a sudden, the beat drops and he switches into like full cowboy gear. And then this video goes viral, right? And on he starts TikTok. On TikTok. Okay. So what happens after that? Hundreds of thousands of other people also start using the audio from Old Town Road and copy this guy's video format of going from street clothes into cowboy clothes. And it goes completely viral. It starts to leave TikTok. If you go onto TikTok, you could save a video off of TikTok. Adds a TikTok watermark. I could throw it onto Twitter. And it makes it super easy for these messages and for these videos to go out in general. So what's really interesting is, like you said, people are going really viral. This one woman, uh, Charlie D'Amelio, she, she signed up in June. June. Just a you know, like regular girl. She just 15 years old. She just joined this app called TikTok at the time. I think it was yeah, it was TikTok, not musically. Um, and she signed up and today she's one of the most followed people on TikTok. Her life is literally totally changed forever. She's in a Super Bowl. She, she, she was in the Super Bowl. She was in the Super Bowl. I mean, she 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 danced. Super Bowl ad. Super yeah, Super Bowl ad. She she just dances on TikTok. What, what's even more interesting is people are saying TikTok could be like the new radio. Mm -hmm. Because back in the day, if you wanted your song to get traction, you had to get it on radio rotation. Right. Today, if you can get people to dance to your song on TikTok and have your song go viral, that's another level. So I think a lot of people are trying to figure out ways, a lot of artists are trying to figure out how to get their song super popular on TikTok, which I think is interesting. So you're saying like they're they're making their songs around TikTok now? I think it's possible, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you've seen that before. I've seen people like, you know, you the reason that like a single is three minutes and 30 seconds in general, like a song is three minutes and 30 seconds in right. general is because that's how much room was on a single for a record. Right. Exactly. Well, we're so, not worried about uh, the fact that they're based out of China, right? I'm very happy you said it. Yes, 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 yes. Are we I've worried been, or are we not? We worried? are not worried about okay. the fact that they're in China. And here's why we're not worried about the fact that they're in China. TikTok isn't in China. TikTok is owned by ByteDance. ByteDance owns two social media sites that are exactly the same. But they're one, in China. One is called TikTok and one is called Douyin. Douyin is in China. But it's owned, both owned by a Chinese company. Right. But here's the kicker. ByteDance has done everything possible to make this a westernized company. The big thing, for example, is that TikTok, TikTok servers are not in China. So TikTok servers are only in countries where TikTok exists. Douyin servers are in China. TikTok servers never, our data as Americans or as anyone not in China never crosses borders into China. I don't know if I believe that. It's 100% true. Here's how you could even tell. Remember I was saying $176.9 million in revenue this year? Yeah. $122 million of that came from Douyin. So Why did that happen? They can't monetize. They cannot monetize. the. On top of just the China thing, they cannot monetize the data that they have on us. Right? They're actually the least, one of the least intrusive social media sites to the point where it's getting in the way of profits for them. Douyin basically only makes money because they have social shopping on the app. So like I could see a cool outfit on a TikTok and shop, for, I mean, on Douyin. And then shop for it right through Douyin. On TikTok, that feature is not very mature yet. Eventually, I think they do. It just in America that social shopping isn't exactly mature yet. 
what I'm saying is that one, yeah. they don't collect enough data on you to be dangerous. And two, even if they did collect enough data on you to be dangerous, it's not going to China. So we're good. We're good. So you're going to make TikToks now? Yeah. I make one. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I made them with my, wow. It's a crack. I <laughs> made them with, <laughs> I made my TikTok, my nieces make me make TikToks with them a lot. And by the way, super easy to use. They're five and nine years old and they're making full videos on TikTok using TikTok's video studio. So circling back. So you're going to get, you're going to, you're going to create more TikToks now. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start. I'm, I'm going. I'm trying to go viral on TikTok. I know, I know. Yeah, it's my, it's my big plan. All right, let's, let's go talk to Greg. Let's go talk to Greg. All right, everyone. Also, just please excuse the little bit of echo that's in the background of this one. We recorded this one offsite. Other than that, it's an incredible interview, and Greg is the man. I'm probably just overthinking it. No, it's, it's really a great interview. Robert, He's, Robert just overthinks, overthinks everything. I overthink everything. But all right, we will be right back. And we are back with Casual Pour today. We are sitting down with Greg Smith. Greg, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me, guys. I remember the first time I went to your website, I was blown away by the companies you had on this. You had uh, Sweetgreen, Via, Beyond Meat, Jewel, Casper, Intercom, Airtable, all these incredible companies. I mean, any single one of these companies isolated would be the hit of any other VC funds portfolio. So I remember being like, I cannot wait to meet this whole fund. This is going to be a huge group of people. And then I get there and it's just like one <laughs> fucking guy in, a, in an office surrounded by lunchboxes from the 80s. Um, do you actually do you want to tell them about the lunchbox? Sure. The lunchboxes. I mean, uh, you know, the, the lunchboxes. The lunchboxes. If, if, if you have the pleasure of coming into my office, I have probably about 45 or 50 lunchboxes. Wow. And these are old lunchboxes from the 1960s through the 1980s, most depicting popular TV shows of, of that era. So like? You can see anything from Get Smart, Planet of the Apes, Brady Bunch, Partridge Family, to E.T., Star Wars. Um, I love that. And, and products even like McDonald's or uh, Frosted Flakes. But, uh, you know, I call it the poor man's pop art collection. And it's something that, you know, wandering in, into uh, a dusty old antique store, uh, maybe in Vermont in the early 1990s. I saw right. one of these in the back for $5 and it was reminiscent of my childhood. It might have been a Scooby-Doo lunchbox and picked it up, asked the lady in front how much it was. And for five bucks, I'm like, this is pretty cool. What a deal. And Pretty soon after that, I was addicted. So, you know, all of a sudden I bought one, then I saw another, then I had five, then 10, and then 20. What are you going, like 1980s lunchboxes.com? This is pre-eBay days, so not an efficient market. This was a real treasure hunt. So you really had to work on it. Then I discovered there was an antique newspaper and to go out and really hunt for things that I wanted. So when I cool. realized there was a James Bond lunchbox from the late 60s with Sean Connery Sick. on it, That's great. I just had to figure out how to get it. So. That's that's the lunchboxes. But people come to my office. I ask them, you know, before they leave to pick their favorite. And um, you know, it's it's always very interesting and people get a great kick out of it. Interesting. And before you ask, no, you can't ask for a sneak peek of who everyone's favorite is. You uh, actually have to pick and I was just gonna ask. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh I know. Man. All right, let's move on now to the meat of this. Let's talk about the companies that will define the decade. Here's how this is gonna go. Each of us are gonna go around and introduce a company that we think is going to play a major role over the course of the next 10 years. Greg, you're gonna go first, and then from there, we'll just have a roundtable discussion. Cool. So why don't you get us started? Which company do you think is going to define the decade? 
Well, with a caveat, it's always hard to uh, predict the future. And, and I don't know if anyone would have looked back in the last uh, 10 or 13 years and said, you know, the iPhone, that as a product is going to, you know, define what, you know, how it's going to shape a generation and how our kids are going to behave when they're sitting at a, a table in a restaurant and, and keep their attention. But I'll, I'll inward look and look at, you know, the portfolio of uh, investments that I have today. And maybe I'll start on transportation. And, um, you know, for me, it was something personal. Uh, a company here that began here in New York called Via. Uh, Love Via. Via uh, began on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, offering rides to really commuters going to and from work. Uh, beginning, I believe, when it started, maybe it was seven o'clock in the morning, ran to maybe about seven in the evening. And for $5 a ride, you could go to anywhere, um, actually, a defined uh, um, uh a space in Manhattan. It ran from the Upper East Side, maybe down to the 40s. Um, and it was rideshare, so very different than Uber. And and as you look at that, you know, the main difference is if you if you get an Uber, you're buying a car, right? You're, yeah. you're engaging the car. With Via, you're not buying a car, you're buying a seat. So you may get in a Via, there may be uh, certainly other people in the in the car with you. But what I think is unique about Via to where it's evolved to today, uh, they've now obviously expanded from that limited geogra- geography of the Upper East Side of Manhattan to all of Manhattan and, in fact, all the five boroughs. And now they're in many, many other markets, not across uh, uh, necessarily in the U.S., but also around the world. But what's unique about Via is I really think they're disrupting um, commuter transportation. So um, they've really perfected their software, their algorithms, and their ability to route their vehicles in a city and create what are called virtual bus stops. So the big opportunity for Via is really walking into municipalities. And if you look at any city today and you look at a bus, just watch a bus driving up and down the street <laughs> and pick a, pick a day part, whether it's the middle of the day, obviously it's seven or eight or nine in the morning, the bus is gonna be pretty packed with people commuting to work. But if you see that same bus, you know, driving at the middle of the day or at midnight, uh, generally 80% of that bus is empty. But, you know, a city has massive capex associated with keeping up that uh, that fleet. They probably have union labor. Um, you have this uh, diesel, um, you know, a behemoth running around the streets, yep. you know, belching out fumes. And it's very inefficient, right? If, if you're paying for this thing to drive up and down the avenue and it's uh, empty, probably 80% of the time, it's, it's just not efficient. So I look at the VIA model as being uh, one where they can approach cities and talk about implementing a much more efficient um, mode of commuter transportation, Mm. one that is uh, definitely greener uh, because it can uh, contract and expand based on different day parts. So in the middle of the night, you don't need to have all those buses or even when they run limited buses driving around. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a much more um, consumer-friendly experience because... Who wouldn't want to order their car, get picked up a block or so from where they are? It's not a big deal walking to the corner yep. and have, again, the quote-unquote virtual bus stop, which Via has coined, having the vehicle pick you Did up. Did they coin the term virtual bus stop? Like That's what they refer to their stops. When, when you call the Via, you know, again, an Uber will come right to your door, but a Via is going to say, go to this corner or that corner and and not veer off a course because, again, there's younger other passenger in the car. They'll pick you up. Uh, in the virtual bus stop and and bring you an efficient route to your location, all at a cost that's probably comparable to mass transit. Um, you know, again, looking at markets where there's existing mass transit solutions and going into those markets. So today, uh, Via is now licensed out their you know their TAS platform, their transit as a service platform, mm-hmm. to probably a hundred other operators and municipalities around the world who are taking their software, their algorithms 
and deploying, you know, these VIA-like fleets in those markets. So to me, that's a big opportunity. And then next, what was implemented last year, which is just brilliant here in New York City, is the city of New York uh, contracted with VIA, I believe it was a $36 million contract to install wow. VIA's uh, platform in all the yellow school buses, all the public school buses no here in New York. Way. So think about, you know, the kid standing on the corner in the morning in the snow, wondering where his bus is. <laughs> How much better would it be for mom or dad to look on their phone before stepping out and waiting mm, in the cold wow. to know the bus is eight minutes away? I don't need to stand on the corner. Likewise, for drop off in the afternoon to know that uh, little John or Jen is going to be dropped off in 28 minutes and I can see where the bus is. Strategically, I think it's second to none. I mean, if you look at Uber and Lyft, they're not. I mean, it doesn't even feel like they're competing with Uber. No, what's, what's really interesting is they want to become Uber and Lyft. They want to become your hub for transport, all types of transportation. That's what they're calling it. But they're really focused on kind of implementing mass transit maps. And it's a much more efficient bikes. form of mass transit. Yes. And, and I think the argument there too is it, it uh, could be and should be much cheaper for the cities. Even if, you know, here in New York, let's say. That's um, the key, right? I mean, that's the, that's the big selling point as well. Well, it's also how do you measure cost, right? Do you want right. to, uh, how do you measure being more green or how do you measure less diesel output? Um, but also there's other costs, right? Because the knee jerk is to look at and say, oh, a VIA ride is $8, uh, you know, for a typical passenger, let's say. Whereas our mass transit solution today is $3 for, let's say, your metric cards. Right. right. But. How much is it for the MTA to spend on maintaining that fleet? There's billions of dollars. They're obviously uh, running at massive deficits. You have union labor and you have a, a shitty consumer experience. So if that $8 ride was subsidized by the MTA or that municipality um, on an apples to apples basis, they might end up even saving money because they don't have to issue, uh, they don't have to issue bonds to now pay for aging infrastructure. And um, they could have a much more efficient fleet. They could even probably free up all the massive real estate they have of all the bus terminals that are servicing these buses. Um, you know, the, the one headwind might actually ultimately be labor, right? I mean, you might have um, union labor that might not be in favor of this because, you know, what's this going to do to jobs? But I will say, if you ever ride a VIA and you talk to the, the driver of the VIA, they love working for VIA. Interesting. They love it. They're actually getting an hourly wage. They're not like Uber where it's eat what you kill, but they're getting a fixed hourly wage and they love it. I would say that's decade defining worthy. I say that I feel like that's definitely going to play a role in our day to day yeah. over the course of the next few years. And, right. and now with them in 100 cities, um, you know, it's how 100 wow. cities already. When I first invested in the company, it was really V operating here in New York. How long have they been in business for? They launched in uh, New York in 2014. Uh, they then had uh, Daimler, you know, Mercedes Daimler come in and invest and make a strategic investment. And now they're, you know, all throughout Europe and Asia. And wow. So is that why everyone, all the Vias are driving like Mercedes mattresses now and things yes. like that? Mm. But again, keep in mind, Vias operating their fleets here in New York, but in other cities, they're not operating their fleets. They might be operated by third party operators or the, or the municipality themselves. So got it. Okay. Amazing. All right, cool. So that is Via, company number one that is going to define the decade. Do you want to handle company number two? Yeah. And this is one uh, I think a lot of people are now really big fans of. And I know I know Greg's also a big fan, but um, which we're going to talk about in a second, but Beyond Meat. I have Beyond Meat every single morning on my way into the office. It's everywhere. And it really, it's funny because it really just came on the scene in a big way in the past year or two um, in a way nobody's really seen before. So the company's, obviously everyone knows the stock is flying. It's a trillion dollar meat market in globally. 
That's a big market to disrupt. And it's a duopoly basically right now with them and Impossible. And um, I just think it's healthier and it's better for the world. And I don't think there's anything else out there. Greg, you are an investor in Beyond Meat. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the plant-based industry on the whole and how things are going to be changing over the course of the next few years? Sure. I, I agree with what you're saying. I would say that uh, Beyond Meat is certainly not your mom's veggie burger. Huh. And I would really probably point at uh, it was a very unique epiphany moment for the company. I think when they went public in May of last year, in May of 2019, when they went public, I would say that uh, in, in my experience, certainly being around the markets for the last 30 years, it was probably one of the first times that I've witnessed an IPO uh, because it performed so well, actually catalyzed consumer interest in the product. Meaning you had this yes. IPO price at 25, people saw then the stock traded to over 200, actually 235. Holy and shit. I think yeah. you had people saying, wow, we, we have to try this. Versus in the past with other consumer-related um, consumer companies that went public, you generally didn't have that. You might have had uh, a company go public. Consumers of the product would say, oh, wow, look, I like this brand. They went public. I want to buy Michael Kors stock. But in this case, it was performance that I think caused a, a generation of folks um, to wake up and say, I want to go out and try this. Now, it wasn't a one-hit wonder. People tried it, and they came back for more. And that's that's what's happening. So I think it's really changing uh, changing the landscape of of what's happening in in eating. And I look at my teenage children; uh, they certainly don't eat the way I ate. There's a much greater awareness on um, healthfulness, and then all the social issues that go with it. You know, but first and foremost, healthfulness is um, I would definitely put at the top, and the social issues that you referenced about methane gas. Uh, and let's get into water consumption of the animals, yeah. which, which is a big yes. issue. Let's talk about the arable land that, you know, they have to graze on and just, you know, the, the, the number of animals. So I think it's uh, really changed the industry. And now you're seeing different types of products. You're seeing pork, you're seeing chicken, uh, you're, you're see the seafood, you're going to see, you know, shrimp, lobster, scallops, and um, a lot more plant-based stuff coming. Plant-based shrimp. Plant-based shrimp. Yes. Do you want to take it? Sure. Uh, you know, another company in my portfolio that I am really excited about is New Wave Foods. So they've invented uh, really the category for their first product is plant-based shrimp. It's so good. And on the, you have, you've had it? I had it. I had it. I had it. I oh, it was I got to really try good. that. It was amazing. So it's shrimp made from algae. But, you know, not only have they been successful in uh, replicating the taste of it, but they've also replicated, you know, the snap and the texture. That's crazy. So that's what's really important in shrimp. And on their product roadmap is also lobster, crab, scallops. And, um, you know, the problems with shrimp uh, as it relates to plant-based or, or if you were to weigh it next to meat, certainly the issues in meat are much bigger, but in the shrimp industry, uh, there are many problems. Um, you know, putting aside, believe it or not, don't laugh, shrimp fraud. You know, more than 30% of shrimp is mislabeled. No way. You have slave labor. You have, you know, uh, you know, little kids and literally slaves, you know, farming for the, for the shrimp. You have um, bycatch problems. You talk about there's, you know, for every pound of shrimp caught, there might be 20 pounds of other bycatch caught that's killed and, and not released. You have microplastics in the shrimp. You have antibiotic use. So, you know, I could go on and on about, about that. Um, 
it, it, it is a little bit different than certainly the water issues and the methane gas and, and other issues as to meat. But I think that, again, with the growing awareness of, you know what, I'll just say this next generation, whatever age they are, they're certainly younger than me. They're, they're going to be more acutely focused than, than I ever was at that age uh, or my generation ever was. People are more conscious and more conscious about their health than I think any other time in our history. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw a new company into the ring. Yeah. It's a company called Carta. And almost no one on the day-to-day has probably heard of it yet. I love those companies. It's my, fa- it's my favorite company. What do we got? Uh, I've been looking at this company since I was 18 years old, and it was called eShares originally. Um, Carta is going to fundamentally change the way running a company and raising money for a company works. They are, more than any other company in the world, in the perfect position to build the first, what they describe as the first stock market for private companies. They started off doing something that sounds completely boring. It was a cap table management system for startups, right? This is basically lets you manage your equity across all of your shareholders, your employees, investors, advisors, whoever it is that you're actually giving equity to. But why they did the boring thing is because every single founder needed that. I need that at my company. I had to manage mine on spreadsheets. They created this utility. And because they created this utility that everybody needed, now they have 800,000 different shareholders on their site across 11,000 startups, and they're managing $575 billion worth of value. So they're not really competing with any other cap table system. They're competing with the New York Stock Exchange. They're competing with the NASDAQ. Because here's the thing, all of a sudden with Carter, there's this new kind of liquidity event. As an investor, I could sell my shares or as an employee in a startup, I could sell my shares to another investor and basically create my own liquidity event for myself. What does that mean? That means that all of a sudden investors could take money off the table, money off the table that they could put towards other portfolio companies, invest into new companies because they know that there's an opportunity here where it's not just binary and long term. So what's the long term goal here? Greg, I think you and I have talked about this company a lot and how much we love it. Why don't you talk about a little bit about the play? Sure. I mean, I, I would agree that if you initially describe it to someone, they're going to be really bored. Their eyes might roll into the back of their head uh, when you say they do cap table management. As Robert said, that core product is in need. Uh, there are now probably maybe upwards of 13,000 private companies utilizing Carta for cap table management. So that's very important because it, it's become a very sticky platform because those 13,000 companies really aren't going to leave Carta. They're only going to leave if they either go out of business or they get acquired. But the bigger play, I think, with Carta and why I invested in Carta uh, more than two years ago is I think they're going to completely disrupt Wall Street. If you look at Wall Street, you look at capital formation on Wall Street, how it's occurred in the past. You had all these big investment banks. You had Goldman and Morgan and, and Bank of America. They were all gatekeepers to the capital markets. So traditionally, a company would need to engage one of those banks to get access to capital and then raise capital, whether it be from a fund um, or another institution. Uh, If they wanted to go public, again, they needed to engage one of those gatekeepers of the capital markets. And the gatekeeper, the banks, were separate from the exchanges. And they still are today for the most part. You have the New York Exchange, you have NASDAQ, and that bank would then bring that company onto that exchange Uh, where then those securities would be traded by different market participants. What I think is completely unique about Carta and why I think they will disrupt Wall Street in the next 10 years is by starting with the cap table management product, they're getting all these companies sticky to the Carta platform. They can now work down uh, and and integrate um, into uh, providing liquidity for those companies. So 
as Robert talked about, they'll now have an exchange. And this is not live yet, but at some point here in the next, I'll say two years, they'll have a marketplace or an exchange for trading these companies. And I think the, the grand plan in the future will be, why would a company, if they wanted to, you know, quote unquote, go public in the old fashioned way, why would they need to retain Goldman or uh, or Morgan and pay that and then fee. go on to an exchange when it's all self-contained in Carta? So if that was an A round and it became a B round and a C round and a D round and they now said, oh, we're going to go public, Carta could say, well, we got you. We'll do it right here. We already have the millions of investors on our platform because Fidelity has a Carta account. So does you know Sequoia, so do I, and so do all their employees. Likewise, will be every other mutual fund, whether it be T. Rowe Price, because I tell you, if T. Rowe Price owns securities in a private company, which they definitely do, they have a Carta account. And Carta then has perfect information, unlike maybe Goldman, who maybe is looking through SEC filings, Carta knows exactly what T. Rowe owns. So they might know that they own everything in in a particular space and they will be very smart on what to present or approach them with uh, as it relates to the holdings. So I believe that they can completely disrupt not only the investment banks and those gatekeepers, as I refer to them, but the exchanges and create that all in one one uh, centralized location. And I think that's really, really unique. So they're the stock exchange and the investment bank that brings you there. Yes. Because again, think about it, uh, they have the millions of accounts. So Carter right now not only manages the holdings for the founders, if uh, they manage the investors like myself, whether it be venture, venture funds, mutual funds, hedge funds, and they also manage all the holdings for the employees. So all these 13,000 companies that are on Carta, all their employees, all their option plans are on there. So again, this could be a Charles Schwab or it could be uh, any other investment bank. They have sort of perfect uh, purview and information into all the marketplace constituents. Was, right, you need to build liquidity, you need to prove it works, but really they've gotten through the first uh, <coughs> step, excuse me, of um, you know demonstrating that they have a very sticky product that's needed by uh, thousands and soon to be tens of thousands of companies. And um, that's really the jumping off point. It's really interesting. And I think it's funny that nobody's really talking about it. Yeah. All you right. Know? So now let's go to Greg. If you have any other company that you want to throw into the ring for uh, companies that you think will define the decade, uh, what do you got? Well, um, I think you know my portfolio pretty well. I've done a lot, certainly in the smoking space. So I think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big uh, anti-smoking advocate. I hate cigarette smoking. I, I hope it goes away. We all know the facts that, you know, certainly this year, 480,000 Americans will die from smoking or secondhand smoke. It's going to kill half of all of its users that use it. Um, but despite all the information and, and the fact that, you know, the U.S. Surgeon General and others have been screaming, uh, you know, their heads off with their hair on fire since the 1960s about all the risk involved, we still have a billion smokers in the world today. But I think with that being said, we are seeing um, a big movement. Again, I reference my kids, my teenage kids, um, you know, for the first time ever, uh, they really do have a visceral reaction to combustible cigarette smoking. When I was a teenager growing up here in New York City in the 1980s, half my class smoked Marlboro Reds. And um, it was just what, you know, kids did. But today, I don't see that type of behavior. I see uh, my kids running past people on the street if they're smoking cigarettes. But I, I really hope that um, I think, you know, in the next 10 years, I really hope that we see smoking rates get down to, you know, a continued path towards towards zero. 
And I think that we are going to a smokeless future. Uh, the trends that are there. Um, I've made uh, a number of investments in the vaping category. Uh, vaping has had a challenge last six months due to the um, uh, black market vaping illnesses that cropped up here in the States uh, in, in the fall and the winter of, of last year of 2019, um, which really, uh, did hurt the market in a way because it, it, you know, uh, cast blame on a legitimate product that I really think is a public health benefit, um, because of the fault of, uh, some bad actors in, in the black market. That Who weren't even using product. nicotine, like they weren't even no, nicotine THC, but yeah. you know, so coming back to smoking, um, I, I, I've made a big bet that we are going to a smokeless future. And I think that you look at combustible smoking rates and they're continuing to decline. The rates of decline are happening faster and faster. And I'd say the one company in my portfolio that I'm probably most excited about that I think is really going to play into the future of this is a company called Respira Technologies. So even plot twist, everyone thought he was going to choose Jewel. Yes. Jewel has really led the way, right? Jewel um, and uh, Jewel has really defined the category. You had the early entrance, you had Enjoy really create the category and, um, you know, light it on fire, no pun intended. Uh, but there, there was a challenge bunch of years because uh, on the one hand, they created a product that uh, should have been good, but it just didn't fulfill the needs of smokers, right? So it wasn't until Jewel came along with their Nick Salt formulation that they were really able to give cigarette smokers uh, a bona fide replacement that they were satisfied with. So I think hats off to Jewel. It's it's a great, elegant product. But back to Respira. Respira has invented a new form of vaping, which is um, giving the user the ability to smoke without heating or burning. If you've looked at everything, you know combustible cigarettes obviously are burning. Of course, a match. Uh, products like Juul or Enjoy are their heating, uh, their heating element. So there's, you know, big belief that anytime you heat or burn something, there's some toxic emissions, you know, despite the fact that we, we've all been told that vaping is 95% better for the user than smoking a cigarette. Um, there's some toxic emissions. So Respira, their technology, uh, which is not on the market yet, they've, they've completed it, filed their patents. Uh, we know it works, but it's going to be an incredible solution when they can get this product to market to be able to provide consumers the ability to smoke without heating or burning and in turn, no toxic emissions into their lungs. Any insight on when we're going to see that? I, I would say, you know, uh, certainly by 2021, I think um, hopefully this will be in the hands of consumers. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm bullish on the outlook for the product. And I think that uh, when people realize it, I mean, the company's sort of been in stealth mode, uh, but when people realize the product they have and, and they've come to realize the benefits of it, um, you know, I will make the big statement, uh, it has to fulfill um, consumer need, right? Again, you look at the early variations of Enjoy when it came out maybe in 2009 or so, and you had these cigalite looking products. It, it didn't do for smokers what they need. And it wasn't until Juul came along with their formulation. So if Respira falls down on that for some reason, it might be a challenging path to market, despite the health <clears throat> benefits and claims of the product being much better for you. I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing what it looks like, and I'm looking forward to see how people react. Well, if you're not a smoker, don't start. No, no, no. no. Nicotine's pretty addictive. Yeah. And uh, one more question. And we're going to, we ask all our guests this question at the end. Yes. Um, is entrepreneurship born or made? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, 
what is the definition of an entrepreneur, right? I think an entrepreneur is really a salesman, right? You have to be a really good salesman. You think about you're selling everybody all the time. You're selling your employees to come join you. You're selling investors to give you capital. You're selling customers to buy your products or services. Um, you know, you're, you're selling your spouse to continue to have faith in you and you know, <laughs> not quit. So I don't know. Are you uh, um, born a salesman or, you know, do you learn, learn those lessons along the way? I think it's a combination of both. I think first and foremost, you have to have the passion to go do anything. But, um, you know, you can, you can be a great founder, but if you're a shitty salesman, I don't know. Um, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen a lot of great people with great ideas and great, great products, but you know, if they can't sell and they can't raise capital and to get stuff done, it's, um, it's a problem. Interesting angle. Yeah. Love that. All right, Greg, you are the man. Thank you for coming on to the show. Just to recap quickly, the companies that will define the decade are Via, Beyond Meat, Carta, Respira, Anything else you want to throw into the mix while we're here? No, I think that's a lot of good things to think about. It's yeah. Good, good mix. All right, well, imagine the music's fading in right now. So if you want to, you know. That's good. Well, thank you guys for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Greg, thank you. Greg, thanks awesome. for coming on the show, man. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we are back. That was Greg Smith. That was unbelievable. Some really, really interesting stuff about Jewel and Beyond Me and Carta and just all and Via and all the companies he, he was talking about. Crazy. Let's talk about NBCU, NBC Universal's new streaming service, Peacock. Peacock. Yes, another streaming service. Lillian Rizzo and Joe Flynn at the Wall Street Journal uh, just gave some updates on what this service is going to be about. It's going to be about $4.99 a month with commercials, $9.99 a month without commercials. Oh, I love uh, that. Yeah. Well, what, no, they all do that. What, do they? Is this the is this the first streaming service to do like a cheaper with commercials? No, Hulu did that. Hulu did it also? Yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. The pricing was different with Hulu. It was like $6.99 versus $9.99. Yada, yada, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Huh. Um, they'll have reruns and new original content, um, some stuff with Alec Baldwin and... They're gonna they're they're bringing The Office back. They're taking it from Netflix, which is Netflix's number one most streamed show. They're bringing that over to their streaming service. If you're a Comcast or a Cox customer, you get the ad supported version for free. Um, and they even have live sports and news, which nobody else has. Huge, 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 huge. Yeah. Two things you just said that are super important. One, it's free to every single Comcast member, and you said it every. Well, with the ad with the ad supported. Yeah, version, that's yeah. huge. Yeah. So. Built-in streaming service if you're already a cable member. Two, do you say live news and sports? Mm-hmm. That's the la- that's the missing link. That's the missing link for a streaming. I just service. don't know. I don't like. Okay, listen. Like, what? There's a there's a statistic out there. Okay, customers are willing to pe- spend about forty four dollars per month max on streaming services. Right. That's like. Four? I will pay four ninety nine a month for live TV with ads live because news. right now live, live news. news, especially live news. I don't yeah. care about live other. Than well, that. what are you getting? You're, and with NBC, well, so right now, like, look, NBC I go and MSNBC. Right. Well, right now I go to Netflix and I watch reruns. I go to Hulu, I watch reruns, right, and originals and stuff like that. But I have nowhere that I'm really getting the news um, other than going onto Facebook, going onto Twitter, going so onto my news app, you're going saying, onto you know you know what I'm saying. This is like the first time that I've like I would easily pay four ninety nine to get live news. So on you're my saying computer. the, the uh, Peacock would play into your $44 a month max. Easy. Easy call. So there's another service out there. Okay. That's coming up. Yep. It's called Quibi. Cool. It's 
Uh, it was started by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who started DreamWorks and used to run animation at Disney. And he hired Meg Whitman, former CEO of HP and eBay, cool. to be the CEO. And basically what it is, is it's, I think, I think Quibi stands for Quick Bite or something like that. Okay. And, and the whole idea is that it's quick four to seven minute content, but really, really high quality. Okay, that's the like entire streaming service. in the middle of it or something. Yeah, ads and it's no, but it costs you like I think it's like six ninety nine a month. Yeah, lost me. Why? What are you talking about? <laughs> it's quick form content. It's four to seven minutes. It's four to seven, but high quality content. They're hiring big directors, mm, high big quality actors, content, high big actors. But I'm not paying. Okay, what did you say? Six ninety nine a month? Maybe four ninety nine a month. I'm not paying four ninety nine a month, mother. <laughs> Why would I do that? That's ridiculous. I'm going to go out to Facebook. I'm going to go out to wherever, go out to YouTube where I'm already getting four to seven minute content and I'll watch an ad for yeah, it. Yeah, but that's the point. Everyone's going on YouTube and watching like you get an Uber, right? Yeah, so, that's the point. Everyone's already going on YouTube to watch it. But it's not high quality content. They're, fu- they're filling that niche. I go on YouTube. I watch David Dobrik. That's not high quality content. That's great. Qu- that's great content, but it's not high quality. There's also directors and professional. There's short films on not, there all the time. Sh- not really. There can be. They raised a billion dollars quickly. They're going to lose a billion dollars quickly. How much money they raise does not impress me. That just means it's going to be a bigger flop at the end of this thing. You- Sumner Redstone, the founder of Viacom, Paramount, CBS. Well, no, he didn't found CBS. He bought CBS. But he, had a, he has a line, and everyone still uses it today. Content is king. If there's a show you like on Quibi, You'll pay for it. I suppose. You'll pay for it. No, I won't. What's your favorite show? What's my favorite show right now? Um, I'm always still like a sucker for like Scrubs and the West Wing. Okay, so now what if they brought back Scrubs and the West Wing, but each episode was only four to seven minutes long? And... You had to pay for it. What would you do? Would you pay for it? <laughs> I feel like that sucks. Why would they do that to my favorite shows? Give me them long form so I go watch them. Would you do it? No. But they were really great four-minute videos. I will watch an ad. I will watch an ad. I will. I promise you this. You show me an ad, I'll do it. But I have to subscribe and watch an ad for the same shit I'm getting on YouTube? No, thank you. I don't buy it. I don't fucking buy it. Okay. I, I, I think they're going to be big. I think that they're going to be, you're going to see their logo everywhere. They've got a yeah. billion dollars. Yeah. But I don't think they're going to be, I don't think that the streaming service is here to stay. And I definitely don't think, look, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for my $44. You're not getting a piece of my $44. They're getting mine. Listen, we'll try it. If they make great content, I'm going to watch it. Take a screen recording and send me Quibi videos you like or something. That's against the law. Don't. Uh, Robert wants to run for president one day. That's that's gonna that's gonna hurt his election campaign. And that wraps up this episode <laughs> of Casual Poor. Thank you everybody for listening. Our, I think let's wrap it up. Our theme music is by Daniel Lerner. Our album art is by Evan Parnes. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Casual Poor. Like us on Facebook, Casual Poor. Follow us on Instagram at Casual Poor Pod. At Casual Poor Pod. Uh, different than the Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Yes. Um, and of course, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, share this with your friends and anything else that you can do to get the message out there and share this with more and more people. We'd love it if you could share this with some more people. Sounds so desperate. I mean, do it, but you know, we'll be fine. <laughs> do it or don't do it, but do it. Do it. 
All right, that wraps up Casual Report. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See and you next we will, week. We'll see you next week.